Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to the Business Book Podcast. I'm Andrew Hill, the Financial Times' Management Editor, and this is the first of three programmes where we'll match up authors of the six books on the shortlist for this year's Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award and invite them to talk with an FT expert about the issues raised by their books. You can read more about the shortlisted titles at ft.com bookaward or follow the award on social media using hashtag BBYA18. In the next two podcasts, we'll be talking about enterprise and entrepreneurs and work and society. And in this programme, it's the big one, capitalism, past, present and future. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Mariana Matsukato, author of The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy, and on the line from the United States, Adrian Wooldridge, co-author with former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan of Capitalism in America, A History. We're also joined in the studio by Martin Wolf, the FT's chief economics commentator. So welcome to you all. Adrian, as you're the one out in the ether, I'll give you the first shot at describing uh, as briefly as you can the central idea of capitalism in America. Capitalism in America essentially starts out with a sort of conceit, which is a meeting of Davos 400 years ago. And if the great minds of the world had been in Davos 400 years ago, talking about who would be the dominant power in the future... They would have mentioned every part of the world, I'd have thought. They'd have mentioned China, they'd have mentioned Europe, they'd have mentioned India. But the one place that would never have been mentioned would have been the United States. But, of course, the United States became the dominant economic power of the next 400 years, certainly the dominant power now. And this book really addresses two questions. Why did this extraordinary event happen? Why did this completely peripheral place become the powerhouse of the world economy? And secondly, will it remain the powerhouse of the world economy in the future, in the next uh, 400 years. And the answer we talk about is creative destruction. We say that the United States had a greater appetite, a greater tolerance for creative destruction than anywhere else in the world. And so it managed to become the frontier of economic progress. But more recently, its appetite uh, capacity for creative destruction has begun to slow. And with it, its dominance is beginning to decline. Thank you. Um, Mariana, your turn. Tell us briefly what your book is about, The Elevator Pitch. So the book looks at what happens when the debates about value are no longer had in economics departments, but in business schools. It used to be that the economists, and I'm literally thinking from you know now to 300 years ago, talked about value as a fundamental concept that actually had to be debated. It was contested. So you know, classical economists, David Ricardo, Carl Smarth, Marx and Adam Smith looked at labor and literally the division of labor and machinery and technological change. And from that, they actually devised a theory of price. The physiocrats looked at farm labor and agriculture as the center of the value creation process. And before them, the mercantilists looked at uh, trade. 
Now, what's quite striking is that in modern neoclassical economics, that debate about value basically is not there. And we just basically call economics and how it's taught, which is neoclassical economic theory, there's an implicit, not an explicit discussion about value. So I argue that disappearance of this contested terrain of what is value and how is it actually different from price, when it disappears, we end up confusing rents with profits. We end up confusing value extraction with value creation. So it's not that value extraction in itself is new, is that it actually gets easily masked in terms of innovation and value creation. Um, and I look at the effect that that has on the economy, basically on the innovative potential of the economy. It goes down. And inequality, that goes up. So uh, this is an award that goes to the book that provides the most compelling and enjoyable insights into modern business issues. What do you think, Mariana, business readers, a CEO or a banker, as opposed to an economist, should take from the value of everything? Well, I think there's different lessons, but one of the key ones is that value is fundamentally actually collectively created by different types of organizations, institutions, and actors. So just really simply, public private civil society organizations have actually contributed to the value creation process. Even trade unions, by fighting for weekends and eight-hour workdays, actually contributed to how the market itself has evolved. And when we don't actually have a deep understanding of this collective value creation process, we end up having extremely problematic understandings, for example, within the pharmaceutical industry, how to actually price drugs. So there's currently an idea of value-based pricing, which comes down to basically what the market will bear. There was even just recently a 400% increase in the price of an antibiotic, and the CEO of the company, Nostrum, said that he actually had a moral imperative to allow prices to go up to what the market could bear in order to please his shareholders. So this concept of shareholder value, for example, which has been critiqued by many in terms of the short-termism it brings to the economy, what I try to do in the book, and hopefully it will be very useful to those business leaders actually thinking about these issues. For example, Larry Fink, you know, the CEO of BlackRock, who wrote a letter to 500 CEO saying, hey, we got a problem here. We need to rediscover our purpose, that it's not enough just to complain about short-termism. We have to better understand some of the problematic assumptions that underlie the value proposition behind maximization of shareholder value. And so what I do is I go through sector by sector, pharmaceutical industry, the modern data economy, how we think about government, and of course, modern day finance, and try to sort of uncover some of these very problematic assumptions about value. And in order to actually then think together, again, the public sector, the private sector, increasingly civil society and voluntary organizations about what kind of economy do we actually want to construct? Adrian, your book's a, a history, but obviously it comes right up to the present. And as you've said, it's looking a little bit at what the future of American capitalism might look like. What are the lessons for business leaders from capitalism in America? Well, this is very much an economic history of the United States, but I'd say it's very much also a business history of the United States. It's the economy looked at through businesses. And the two central actors in this book are entrepreneurs and corporations, companies. And we argue that America's two real advantages, the reason it can embrace creative destruction so enthusiastically, is that it has a sort of an ability to create entrepreneurs and ability to create corporations. Um, whereas many of the most successful people in Britain went into becoming sort of gentlemen farmers and aristocrats, or in France they went into becoming civil servants or intellectuals. In the United States, the most ambitious, the most 
talented people have tended to go into business, tended to go into becoming entrepreneurs. And America has had entrepreneurs who have had an extraordinary ability to transform the world. The, the sky is never the limit. They have extraordinary visions of changing the world. And that capacity to produce entrepreneurs seems to be repeated throughout history. You see it in the late 19th century with the so-called Robert Barons, Carnegie and Rockefeller. But you also see it today in Silicon Valley. So it's an extraordinary entrepreneurial machine for creating entrepreneurs. And those entrepreneurs have managed to express their creative talents through corporations. America was in many ways founded by corporations, the Massachusetts Bay Company and the Virginia Company. It was the first country to allow companies to become general purpose organizations so they didn't have to build canals or build railroads, do very specific things. They could go into the business of doing business, essentially. So limited liability was granted very freely, much more freely in the United States than anywhere else. And so America has created companies, has always been uh, very friendly to companies, and has also allowed those companies to operate on an extraordinary scale, a much bigger scale than you've seen anywhere else in the world. So by the end of the 19th century, you have Carnegie Steel producing more steel than Great Britain. It's a huge, huge organization. Again, in Silicon Valley, you have companies that were founded not very long ago, and are now Beermuth's huge organization. So America's two talents, entrepreneurial zeal and corporate almost imperialism, you know, the creation of corporate giants. And I think any business person who wants to understand what it is about business, what makes business dynamic, what makes business creative, could do no better than really look at this book, look at its account of what happened in the late 19th century or what's happening now in Silicon Valley for examples of the sheer extraordinary creative power of the corporation. So I just want to bring in Martin Wolf, who is obviously writing every week in the FT about the field of economics. What are your kind of immediate thoughts about some of the ideas that Mariana and Adrian are airing in these two books? I suppose my immediate reaction is that these ideas represent, if you like, poles of rational analysis of progress in the advanced economies. Um, So it's not about catch-up, not about development, it's about what makes economies advance. And the poles are something like this. Adrian Wooldridge and Alan Greenspan are rooting their view of the US in heroic entrepreneurialism combined with scale. And their core idea is obviously rooted in Joseph Schumpeter, uh, who is the the grandfather, as it were, of the progenitor of the creative destruction idea. They're as critical of neoclassical economics in this sense as Mariana is, namely that perfect competition, full information, all that, this is a completely irrelevant way of thinking about a dynamic economy. It's an evolutionary system whose characteristic is sort of brutal competition, but over time among entities which are very, very far from being in perfect competition. They do have monopoly power, but in Schumpeter's perception, it's temporary. And if you fail, you go under. And we've had a beautiful example in the last few days with the disappearance of Sears, which was a dominant retailer in the US for so long. So they put forward this view, which, by the way, I think has a very substantial element of truth in it. 
And Mariana is saying, and he, she clearly agrees with them, that traditional economics is of the neoclassical kind is absolutely no use whatsoever in thinking about the economy. But her insistence is that a great deal of the behaviour in this real economy, in the economy we actually have, is predatory, unproductive rent extraction, particularly financial sector activity. It has always been so, but it's particularly bad nowadays. And that viewing the economic history of the US through the lens of private sector activity alone seriously understates, I mean massively understates, the consistent role of governmental institutions in supporting this, going back to land grants and all the rest of it. It's the symbiosis of the government and state and central federal with capitalism that allowed the creation of this vast entrepreneurial machine is the United States. And if we think of it as just heroic private entrepreneurs, we're missing a huge part of the story. And these seem to me polar opposites. I actually tend to think they're both right. But uh, <laughs> that is because I'm increasingly suspicious of one-sided explanations of anything. But I'm, that's my reaction. They're very intelligent discussions, it seems to me, of different ways of thinking about the elephant of economic progress. Yes, I mean I've I've looked at both books and they are a sort of complement to each other. I, I think it's a good it's a good lesson from this whole podcast that you should read both books. Mariana, what do you feel about the kind of the creative destruction part that Adrian and Alan Greenspan have obviously outlined in their book? I mean, that you go you talk much more about the the government influence. Co-shaping is a word, word that you use about how we're creating the future value. Yeah, so by co-shaping, I simply mean that the current way that we think about the role of government in the wealth creation process is simply fixing market failures or at best de-risking and facilitating the, the great entrepreneurs when actually what history shows us is that government itself, when it's properly organized, you know, it's not always properly organized. There's lots of inefficient and inertial government institutions, but the history of Silicon Valley actually was a history of different types of public, different types of private sector institutions along the entire innovation chain. And those public institutions, whether it was DARPA, NSF, NIH, SBIR, sorry for all the acronyms, but it, you know, we don't have time to go into all of those, but they were actually taking risks for every successful internet, which was funded by DARPA. There's many failures. Tesla received the same amount of money in recent times as Solyndra. Solyndra received 500 million in a guaranteed loan. They went bust. Tesla received more or less the same. Well, now they're going best because of all these crazy tweets. Uh, but anyway, um, this kind of, you know, kind of venture capital role of the government, what I call investor first resort, not just lender of last resort, has actually been incredibly important for the recent history of post-war capitalism. And interestingly, China has learned that lesson and the U.S. is unlearning that lesson. But just to say, you know, for me, it's not about the state or the private sector. And Schumpeter was really interesting because he was much more intricate and granular than, you know, those who just talked about creative destruction, and I'm not talking about Adrian here, I just mean the kind of popular understanding of uh, Schumpeter. He had two different kind of books, really his early stage, which came out of the theory of innovative enterprise. He really kind of mythologized the you know small company, the entrepreneur, and just thought you know that what you actually required was thinking out of the box, and this would eventually dismantle the status quo, and that was a positive force in capitalism. And his late work 
in capitalism, socialism, and democracy. He was like, uh-oh, we got a problem here. Actually, to properly innovate, you need you know, serious R&D laboratories, and only the large companies are going to be able to do that. So capitalism, in his view, was inevitably becoming sort of a monopolistic kind of economy. And he thought that was a problem, that it was both good in the sense that, yes, big companies are you know, big innovators, and they require these large laboratories, but what does that mean for competition? And the truth is that, you know, is that it's somewhere in the middle. If you look at the innovation chain and the industry life cycle, in some phases, in fact, it's more the small innovative kind of startups. In other phases, it's the large companies that are actually able to reinvest their profits. But what we currently have, which is what I talk about in my book, is an extreme financialization of big industry. So not just about finance, right? So finance, financing, finance, <laughs> what Andy Haldane and people like that talk about, that's financialization of the financial sector. But financialization of industry is when these profits that Schumpeter was looking at are no longer being reinvested back into production and innovation, but in areas like share buybacks, right? So to boost share prices, stock options, and surprise, surprise, executive pay. So that's a real problem for innovation. You know, any Schumpeterian economist who understands the importance of reinvesting profits back into, you know, innovation of different types, including human capital formation, should be very worried by modern day capitalism. Adrian, uh, you obviously Schumpeter is a bit of a hero running through the, your book. The government doesn't get much of a look in as far as I can tell. I dipped into the part where you talk about DARPA and it's a sort of glancing reference and then we're off again into creative destruction and the role of entrepreneurs. Or am, am I, have I not read the right bits? Oh, I, I question you a bit there. I think one of the, uh, the phrases I like of uh, Mariana's is, is, is intricate and granular. And one of the things about this history, I think, is it is quite an intricate, granular history. It's not a theory-first history creative destruction is right at the center. But it's not theory first. It's not pure economic theory. It's really, you know, old-fashioned history, which we've done by as much as possible telling stories and looking at examples. So in the 19th century, there's an extraordinary role of land, of land banks. The American government isn't particularly interventionist in the, in the sense that it's, it, I don't think it's creating a Hamiltonian republic by using tariffs deliberately to, to, to create new industries and protect the infant industries. It's not doing that much of it, it's mostly using tariffs actually to, to raise money. But what it is doing is using land, which the, the government has this huge amount of land, to uh, encourage emigration to the West and also to sort of subsidize essentially the, the building of the railroads. Railroads are building on spec. They're building, you know, into the middle of nowhere. So they're taking huge risks, and it's much easier for them to take risks if they're given large grants of land, because once they've built the railroads in 10, 20 years' time, that land is worth a great deal more. So the role of government is extremely interesting, intricate, and one-off almost, because you've got this largely empty country. Again, I think during the Second World War, the government plays a vital role in boosting the economy, and after the Second World War, in boosting the economy. You know, America was sinking back to another recession within a recession at the end of the 1930s. And it's really government spending, government activism that boosts the economy and continues to boost the economy in the 40s and, and 50s. And again, I think with DARPA, definitely, I think we give credit to the role of somebody like Vannevar Bush, who's an amazingly insightful figure, incredibly broad in his thinking and does lay down the blueprint of scientific uh, investment in the scientific republic. Um, so um, I think that we're, it's, it's the detail, and the detail of, often defies many of these big grand theories, right. certainly in the United States. Martin, what role do you see for government now in encouraging economies? I mean, there's a lot of suggestion that perhaps it should pull back and leave this to creative uh, entrepreneurs to do their thing. But then there are very successful economies, China being an obvious one, where it's playing a huge role. 
I'll only say two points. I think it's very, very important, though China is sort of on the cusp between this, to distinguish the role of government in catch-up economies from its role in economies that are really at the frontier. I think in the case of catch-up economies, it is pretty clear that in the right policy context, governments do play a very large role when done well. You can see this very clearly in East Asia in accelerating the development process. I have a strong suspicion, however, that we will find 25 years or so from now that quite a lot of what the Chinese government is doing now, not all by any means, is actually not helpful. We will see. I think they've gone too far the opposite direction. I I get the sense that they are increasingly dominating. But to the extent that China is now at the frontier, and in some areas it clearly is, and more broadly for developed countries, then I do think that working out a fruitful symbiosis between the two is sort of a necessary condition for making very rapid progress. And Mariana's arguments here are, to me, fairly persuasive. Probably where I disagree, and it's probably more temperamental than anything else, is that most of my life, looking at most governments, I feel that they have screwed up more than they have helped. So getting this right is really, really hard to do. And most government systems find it really hard to do. Making bits of government work with entrepreneurial flow is, I think, a stupendous challenge. And I have no doubt that for various reasons, the US has done this overall better than any other major country. And it's an example, both where they've done it right and where they've done it wrong, that we all have to learn from. I'm going to ask you each, perhaps, just to um, to sum up a little bit what, whether you're optimistic about the future that you've laid out in your respective works. Mariana, what does the future look like based on the ideas that you've aired? Well, um, you know, precisely because I think that markets are actually, you know, actively co-created, which doesn't mean that's a good thing. You can actually co-create all sorts of negative things, right? But that different actors are together, potentially value creators. The point is not then to make a list, I say Adam Smith did, of where the productive versus unproductive parts of the economy are. But how can we actively co-shape, for example, the financial sector so it actually does step more inside the production boundary, actually you know, allowing finance to be financing real things, but also those real things being, if you want, broadly directed by vision, you know, the green economy, the green missions that we have out there, which I think actually China's playing a leadership role alongside countries like Denmark and Germany. These are ways in which to actually construct, you know, to reimagine what even a mission-oriented kind of approach might be. You know, Kennedy's moonshot project required lots of different sectors in the private part of the economy to interact in new ways, including clothing and textiles, not just aeronautics. What are the moonshot projects of the future and how can we really use the full capacity of different actors in the economy to get there? I do want to say just one quick thing, if it's okay, to what Martin was saying, because I completely agree. I mean, I'm from Italy, for God's sake. So believe me, the state is not, (laughs) um, you know, a good or a bad thing. The problem is we have a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we don't understand even the word public value, it doesn't even exist really in economics. I mean, the BBC talks about public value, but in economics and traditional economic theory, value is created in companies. And at best, the public sector can redistribute that value through taxation or facilitate it by, you know, 
fixing different types of market failures. That becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We end up getting also the education that we provide to civil servants really sort of backseat players. And they actually end up getting trained that government failures are even worse than market failures. And so even the kind of capabilities and capacities that we you know, think are necessary in government institutions increasingly have diminished. And so, of course, you end up getting kind of a bureaucratic, boring, inertial kind of government because we sort of set it up to be so. Even how we define GDP, the government sector, only the salaries, say, of teachers go in to GDP, not the actual value that's created by a well-functioning education system. And so, you know, it's almost impossible even to measure in an accounting ways the productivity of government. And so I just think we've almost set it up to fail. And so that's also the positive, if you want, outlook that I have. I think we really can change things. And that requires both looking at the accounting, how we account for GDP, but also literally the training that we provide to the different types of value creators in the economy. Adrian, you and uh, Alan Greenspan, are you optimistic about the future of capitalism in general and the future of American capitalism specifically? Well, we're a peculiar mixture of optimism and pessimism. We're (laughs) optimistic in the sense that we say there is nothing inevitable about the stagnation that America is currently suffering from. It's not a consequence of the nature of technology or the nature of the internet or the nature of mature economies. We say it's almost a policy choice that it's possible to have a set of policies that will reignite the American growth machine. We talk about addressing America's financial problems or the potential for another financial crisis by obliging big banks to keep much bigger capital buffers behind. We also talk about trying to fiddle with the American entitlement system so that the amount it's spending on entitlements is in balance with the amount of taxes it's taking in. Uh, We think that there are policy solutions to America. So you have to turn the key of policy and you will restore much faster growth. However, saying that at a time when politics is paralyzed, um, when it's very difficult for politicians to agree over even very small things, let alone big things like entitlement reform or financial reform. That's a difficult thing. So it's a policy choice almost to have the current problem of stagnation and slow growth. But getting America back on the right track when it comes to making political decisions is not something that's particularly easy. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Uh, But let me thank Mariana Matsukato, author of The Value of Everything, Adrian Waldridge, co-author of Capitalism in America, and Martin Wolf, author of Books Too Numerous to Mention, uh, for joining us today. And to thank also Yanina Comboy, our producer. Listen out on the Work and Careers channel on FT.com for our next business book podcast and keep an eye on FT.com slash book award for news about the award, which will be presented to one of the six shortlisted titles on November the 12th. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.